Hello and welcome. My name is Joe O'Mara and I'm the head of aviation finance in KPMG. And on behalf of KPMG and airline economics, I'm delighted to welcome you to our latest in their series of aviation industry leaders podcast. And I'm really happy today to have Ted O'Byrne with us. Ted is the managing director and co-head of aviation at Carlisle Aviation Partners, has, and he's worked in the aviation sector for nearly 20 years, previously in, in Aircap and Airbus. Ted, thanks again for joining us today. Perhaps we just kick off with you telling our listeners a little bit about Carlisle Aviation Partners. Sure. Good morning, everyone. And thank you, Joe. Um, yeah, Carlisle Aviation Partners uh, is one of the division of the Carlisle Group. Um, we uh, work with the Global Credit Organization, um, and we manage today 258 aircraft on lease to about 101 airlines. We've got a, a team of 90 people uh, working from uh, our offices in Miami, in Dublin, and in Singapore. And really, we have a, a, a number of uh, funds that... Uh, uh, we manage on behalf of investors, um, both on the equity side, where we uh, acquire aircraft and lease them to airlines, but also on the debt side, where we lend uh, to airlines uh, PDPs, and we also have some uh, ABS and WTC investments in our uh, structured paper uh, funds. And Ted, can I ask you, looking at the current crisis, um, given the amount of time you spent in the sector, how does this compare to other downturns the sector has faced? Well, it's clearly a, it's clearly a deeper, uh, a more globalized and longer lasting, I, we expect, uh, crisis than this, this sector has ever seen before. Um, deeper Look, if you compare this crisis to 9-11, IATA is expecting a drop of traffic, RPK, of about 50% this year. Um, You know, 9-11 was a drop of up to 15%, of traffic. So it's clearly a much deeper impact to passenger demand uh, than anything we've seen before. More globalized, um, you know. You know, obviously, this is impacting everyone uh, around the world. And what it means for leasing companies, such as ourselves, is that you have less options, uh, less options to release the aircraft to another lessee, and therefore it makes uh, our investment case uh, quite a bit more complicated. And then longer lasting. Look, you know, I'm, I'm not a uh, big uh, forecaster, but I will tell you that experts look at a return to normal um, between anywhere between two years and up to eight years. So we expect this crisis to be much deeper than um, you know anything we've seen before. Now, having said that, uh, I will say uh, that I do not subscribe to the view of this, this time is different, so to speak. In other words, you know, there's there's been a number of people mentioning that this may change the way we travel forever, and I really do not believe that is the case. Um, I think that uh, people want to continue to travel 
to go visit their families, um, to go on holidays. And from a business standpoint, well, I think everyone has agreed that uh, video conferencing is a big plus uh, and is, is a great tool to manage teams and communicate internally and, and, and some externally. You know, you still need to uh, meet people to develop businesses, meet people to uh, push new transactions. And so I think the impact on business travel uh, will be limited uh, and we do not see a really clear impact on leisure or family travel. And on that theme, Ted, are looking, given what we have, it is so extreme. And you mentioned those numbers there, almost halving possibly of travel in this year. Can you be informed of what's come before? It's always been a cyclical sector. Uh, and you mentioned 9-11, or you can look at the financial crash and the bounce backs that came from those, or maybe SARS as an equivalent. Can you still take lessons from the pre- previous downturns, albeit what we have here, as I mentioned, is something just more extreme than we've ever seen before? Sure. I think yeah, that's an interesting question because obviously there is there are a number of factors playing here, but what we've seen before, um, which we are starting to see again, is airlines defaulting to the latest and greatest equipment. And you know, we, we're starting to see a number of airlines parking older equipment uh, out of production, uh, plastics uh, and 7.6s, 7 Seven fours, A three eighties. So airlines are defaulting to their core fleets, and in doing so, any out of uh, you know out of production and older equipment tend to be parked. And you know we we believe that uh, you know out of the sixty ish percent of the fleet which is currently parked, um, you know there's a, a large majority of the those older aircraft that may actually not return to uh, operation. Um, so airlines tend to to default their fleets to uh, the, the newest technology aircraft out there. And that's clearly a, a fact pattern that we've seen in previous crises. And we've started to see that happen this time around. I think the other thing which, you know, has impacted mostly the U.S. after 9-11 has been, you know, consolidation. You know, if you look at what what happened uh, after um, 9-11, there was a series of bankruptcies, Chapter 11, sometimes Chapter 22, as we call it. Um, And and really where this led the market to is uh, a great concentration of airlines. I've seen in the U.S. today, five airlines control about 80% of the traffic. And I wonder whether uh, this may, uh, this crisis may lead to the same trend and consolidation in other parts of the world. Uh, for example, in Europe, where, uh, you know, for the same 80% of traffic, you had last year 26 airlines flying. So, 
there is a possibility that this may lead to a, a level of consolidation in other parts of the world, which would be a, a I think, overall a positive thing. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. If you if you do look at the US from an airline perspective, that there has been a belief over the last, you know, as you mentioned, decade or beyond, that the kind of house has got an order, both from a cost and efficiency perspective, and it, it's made of being regulatory or pride holding it back on the European side. And I think you're right. I mean, the airline piece is interesting to see where it goes. In, in, in thinking on geographies, Ted, you mentioned obviously the US there. How do you see or do you see material differences in the three major markets and how they've been impacted and how they'll bounce back? So taking US, Europe and Asia, what's your view on those three markets? Sure. Well, I mean, look, starting with, with the US, we we, we the market believes IETA and other uh, industry experts believe they will be the least impacted market. Right? So the expectation, the forecast IETA has come out with is about a 36% impact to traffic uh, this year in the U.S. Overall, the Fed's whatever it takes approach uh, is obviously you know, very helpful to stabilize the capital markets there. So, the U.S. Is, seems to be coming out, uh, or, you know, is expected to be expected to be coming out stronger uh, uh, or less impacted rather out of this crisis. Um, Europe, as I said, you know, is probably a, an area where um, there are uh, a number of weaker airlines, more fragmentation, and you know, there's a question mark on how this will play out. Uh, um, within those airlines. Um, you know, clearly the pandemic has affected traffic uh, the greatest at this stage. So uh, the impact on traffic is expected by IATA to be in excess of 55% for the year. Uh, and we're right as of right now, uh, I believe that there's uh, about 80% of the fleet uh, grounded still. Um, so you know, in, in that context, the fragmentation of the European government's uh, uh, response uh, is going to make uh, the return to service um, and the return to cash flow positive more complex. Um, and then, you know, finally, the, the, the region, APAC, which has sort of led the way in this pandemic, um, it seems to be managing the pandemic, the pandemic, the best. Um, you know, China has obviously been extremely proactive uh, in the way they've managed the uh, COVID nineteen crisis. Uh, they've been very swift uh, and you know ordered orderly confinement and testing, etc. Um, and you're starting to see our PK bounce back. Uh, I believe that capacity as of today is back to about 75% of 2019's capacity. So it's an amazing bounce back. Um, you know, it gives us a lot of reason to be optimistic. Um, and you look at throughout Asia, um, they've, you know, many countries, Korea, Singapore, have been very proactive in managing the crisis and will probably come out earlier uh, from the crisis, and we're starting to see signs of that in Vietnam and other in other countries. Um, so different different timings of, of exits, um, and um, 
interesting to watch how this is going to play out. And on the OEM side, um, they've obviously had a had a huge impact, and you know, you've obviously had first hand experience with an OEM in the past. How do you see their story playing out, uh, you know, over the next year or two, and, and, and whether it's the management of production rates or cancellations? What do you expect the behaviour to be like for Boeing and Airbus? Yeah, I mean, I, I was at Airbus uh, after the eleven uh, crisis, and you know. Um, Clearly, you know those two EMs have been have been managed for growth for uh, for a long period of time, and you know um, you know the impact on the two large OEMs, uh, let alone Embraer, Air, uh, is is obviously massive. They've had to cut approximately a third of production um, and manage a basically deferrals uh, to. Basically, pretty much every airline uh, they have as customers. Um, so the discussions that are going on around you know, Skyline management, uh, both with airlines and lessors, uh, are, are still ongoing. Um, and what is probably happening without divulging any trade secrets is uh, the OEMs want to manage the short-term deliveries uh, aircraft which are in the pipeline for the production where the metal has already been cut, so to speak, um, and uh, are you know, working with airlines to defer later uh, slots. Uh, so you'll see probably uh, uh, some deliveries um, of, of aircraft in 2020 um, as Closer to what the plan was, uh, and I expect that to be. Um, but more deferrals uh, in occurring in 2021 or later in 2020 and 2022. Now, the OEMs have said publicly that uh, they want to remain agile around their production cuts, which means that they can further cut or re increase production. That's what uh, Airbus has very clearly stated. Um, and they've also stated very clearly um, that they, they expect the leasing community to be a buffer for this crisis. And that is clearly a policy that uh, they've applied before, which means that leasing companies have their work cut out uh, to place uh, their orders. Uh, you've seen some deferrals of, uh, uh, of, of orders from uh, from a number of them already, on especially the, the ones I've publicly uh, reported in Q1. <clears throat> but those, I think those deferrals are really in line with what airlines are willing to take or not take. Um, and I think finally, what's interesting to watch is also um, the pressure that uh, is clearly applied on the international traffic and the impact on the wide body production, and so in, in that regard, uh, I think the, you know you see the cuts on on certain wide bodies on both Boeing and Airbus uh, as uh, maybe a sign to come in the industry for a period of time. Um, I think in this context, uh, you know, it's likely that you will see a 
uh, lower investment in R&D for a period of time. Um, and that means that for us as aircraft investors, that means a more stable environment for investment, right? So if you look at the product lineup of, of Airbus and Boeing, um, you know, they've effectively introduced new aircraft um, over the last uh, eight years. Every single segment, every single aircraft has been renewed. And I do not expect the OEMs to have much cash to invest in R&D uh, to further replace those programs. So from an aircraft investor standpoint, that means we're in a very stable technology environment that we, you know, we, do, we do not expect to have many new uh, aircraft launches over the next uh, years or so. And that, that's understood. And if you guys have a more homogenous product, then as you mentioned, it, it becomes more marketable. As and when you can you can market it again, and, and that, that probably feeds in to my next question is you, know, you mentioned you guys have over you know a hundred airline customers. What has been your general approach? And I know you you'll tailor it depending on the airline. What has been your general approach to to working through the airlines in this crisis, and and what metrics are you considering as you approach whether it's you know uh, permitting deferrals or, or taking uh, taking other type of action. Yeah, I mean, our teams are working extremely hard uh, to be in constant contact with, with our customer, with our airline customers. Um, the approach has been, you know, listen, uh, understand, and help. Um, listen to what uh, airlines are telling us and, and be in very uh, regular contact with the Treasury, the CFOs, uh, and the uh, fleet teams at, at airlines to understand what context there is in their uh, particular market, what they're doing to cut costs, um, you know, what uh, capex deferral they've 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 uh, uh, committed to. They're working with uh, uh, with OEMs and, and the likes, and and how can we help? Uh, and to the extent we have to, obviously, um, and if it matters, um, because in some cases. We feel that uh, you know we're not a bank. Uh, we're uh, we have ultimately fiduciary responsibility to our investors, and we therefore need to balance you know airline airline customers' needs with what uh, investors' return requirements are. So the approach we're taking is is when when we have to, and when it matters to the airline, is to work with the airlines to build a deferral of some of the uh, rent payments, uh, but rather than doing a sort of three months deferral and see you in sort of uh, August or, or so, something like that, we are, we've decided to work on lease extensions. And in addition to those kind of defer or don't defer decisions, Ted, what are the other key challenges you see facing lessors in this environment? Yeah, I mean, I mean for all lessors, the key, and it's always been the case, is the liability side. Our ability as an industry to maintain liquidity, to manage our capex, and to manage our maturities is really key to our survival. Frankly, it's uh, it's always been paramount. And uh, my previous point at AirCap, and today uh, at Carlisle, the, the core focus is on the liability side. 
And so we, we spend our days thinking about uh, thinking about our liability side. Obviously, the revenue line is, is something we watch daily, hourly, I would say. Um, but we're in constant discussion with, with uh, the market, uh, making sure that uh, our bondholders understand what we're doing, our equity investors understand what we're doing, and therefore appreciate the fact that, you know, uh, we cannot, you know, uh, control all the revenue line, but we have a plan and we are action, actioning that plan going forward. Um, I think that's the, the, the biggest issue. I think from a lessor standpoint, maybe not from a, an asset management side, but from a lessor standpoint, the biggest challenge I see um, in the industry is you know, the management of the OEM backlog. I think that, you know, even previous to the COVID-19 crisis, there was an element of, um, I would say, um, over-ordering in the, in, the, in the market. There was an oversupply in the lesser uh, uh, sides. I think uh, um, the OEMs had identified that uh, segment of the market and, and maybe have sold too many aircraft to too many lessors. Um, and, you know, obviously in the context of this crisis, this is becoming a lot more difficult to, to manage. Um, so I think this is the biggest challenge that the industry has to, to, uh, uh, to, to manage over the next uh, few years, given the, the limited demand for new aircraft. Um, I think it's be a, a, a uh, interesting thing to watch on how lessors place their new aircraft deliveries from OEMs. Just Ted, you, you mentioned there on the liability side. What are your thoughts on the current position of, of the debt and capital markets for lessors, and and how do you see that developing? Obviously, the the, the market has shifted to. Uh, an unsecured, large portion of unsecured financing in, in lessors' liability structures. Over the last 10 years, uh, lessors have gotten, mostly gotten ra- ratings and shifted to uh, issuing unsecured bond, which is great from a flexibility standpoint. It's much easier to manage, but obviously it becomes a problem if the capital markets are shut down, as we've seen in March. Um, so I think it's going to be very interesting to watch on uh, you know the the level of of capital which is uh, put in by the Fed in the U.S. and the impact of this on the overall capital markets. Clearly, uh, the situation is a lot more um, a lot better today on the capital markets uh, following the Fed's uh, intervention. I've read this morning that the Fed started to buy uh, some. Uh, Corporate bonds ETFs. So you're going to start that seeing that liquidity trickle into the unsecured bond market, but hopefully also into the ABS markets, which obviously has been very dislocated. Uh, you know, if you look at the secondary, the secondary trades, um, you know, been, the spreads have gone, uh, you know, very wide there, and um, you know, there's a question mark on primary issuances for a while. Having said that, as I said, we expect liquidity to eventually trickle back into both the unsecured market uh, and uh, the ABS market. The real question is when. 
Uh, and that's going to be a key question for, I would say, even the survival of some of uh, the, the leasing platforms in the industry. I think that's interesting, Ted. And obviously, you guys would, would have, you know, operate both as an owner and an asset manager. Um, you mentioned ABS there. You know, that's an example, I guess, of the, a very structured product that, that's managed by asset managers. How, how do you see the challenges differing? What, what, what is different for lessors and asset managers in the current environment? I think even outside the crisis, the asset managers uh, are of a single focus on cash flow. Um, when you underwrite a transaction as a as a, a GP uh, on behalf of your LPs, uh, you only underwrite on the basis of a discounted cash flow analysis. It, you know, PNL really does not come into consideration, um, and therefore it's a it's a purer, you know, easier I would say uh, way to think about uh, an economic uh, position. When, when you're a, a lessor, you tend to have obviously cash as a primary consideration, but you know your PNL, uh, your book position, is constantly uh, also a consideration. So the, the you know, two approaches uh, differ, and it's it's sometimes um, you know you don't get the same response um, as a result of the the, the analysis run. Now. Now, on the positive side, as a lessor, as a, as a balance sheet lessor, um, you have typically a wider access to markets. You typically have a rating. So your, your financing structure is um, more open, shall I say. Um, and um, it's easier to manage from an administration standpoint. As an asset manager... Um, we tend to have more fragmented uh, liability structures, which is more complex to manage. Uh, but the positive side of that is that we have, um, you know, a more uh, higher amount of diversification in our financing structures. Number one, and number two, you know, the risk is spread in different portfolios. So it, one credit impacting our book is uh, really spread over three, four, sometimes five different financing structures, which makes it easier at times of crisis to manage through, basically. And we talked a lot about the dislocation and disruption in the market. And I think what's been interesting, I know on my side over the last few weeks, that you've probably seen a spike in interest in investors, right? Both those that probably had capital to to look at the sector but couldn't make economics work and and others that maybe just focus on distressed sectors generally of, of which aviation is, is clearly a very prominent one at the moment um uh, on your side and you guys would have a, a massive breadth in this um what kind of opportunities do you think could arise in, in aviation finance and and when do you think those will will start to materialize when will will people be willing to to push the button and write what might be big checks but could draw a very large return. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly the, the best investment environment in, in a decade. Um, but uh, I will say that we're extremely cautious. Um, and, uh, you know, we're starting to see, well, we, we've already seen a number of sound leaseback opportunities, first starting with uh, 
airlines looking for immediate liquidity on existing aircraft in their balance sheet. Um, then on looking for a sale lease back on aircraft that will deliver soon and will deliver over the next few years, assuming that they've come to an agreement with the OEM as to when they take will take the delivery. Um, I think that's clearly a, a first uh, uh, phase of opportunities, and that's now. You know, we're starting to see a number of transactions. Um, we're not. Um, we're not. Um, we're not really, uh, you know, very aggressive in those transactions um, because you know we believe that uh, market pricing hasn't fully bottomed out. Uh, we believe that uh, you know asset prices typically fall over a period of time, and they start falling because number one. Buyers whack their discount rate starts to increase. They've got lower LTVs. They've got higher cost of debt. They've got higher equity thresholds. So that's the first impact on, the, on, the, on an asset price. The second impact is obviously when the leases start uh, to run out or the aircraft uh, returns. Uh, you know, in this environment, uh, you know, the lease rates are going to drop. Uh, so there's a two-phase impact and that has not been fully priced into the, the market so we're, we're we're very cautious as to you know deploying our capital right now because we think this has uh, still room to go um, you know having said that I think you know this is going to be a great investment environment as I said um, we, we we're starting to see the sale lease back with airlines market uh, open at numbers which are make a little bit more sense um, and we'll sooner or later starting to see, start to see uh, lesser trades in the market. Um, and I think you know, the, the limited amount of capital market financing available um, is slowing this down, this, this side of the market down, but it will also create some level of distress. And we fully expect that uh, we'll see larger portfolios being traded um, you know, perhaps later this year or early in 2021, at numbers which uh, uh, might yield rather that uh, would be very attractive. And is that something that might be a little bit different to, we mentioned the, the last two downturns, Ted, and that it probably took a period of time for things to settle. And that period of time, you know, could have been a couple of years before you started to see, you know, significant trades or transactions. Is your expectation that given the quantum of disruption here, those types of trades will be accelerated, be it back end of this year or early next year? Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting question. I think the, the, the hard part for anyone right now uh, in the aircraft trading world is to determine the credit quality uh, of, of your counterparty. Right? So, because so many airlines are in financial distress in one, sh one shape or another, um, it's very difficult to know, um, you know, whether or not this airline will be there over the long period of time. So, I think the first, the first, uh, you know, the buyers uh, in this environment, including ourselves, really are focusing on the really top tier credits um, and people or airlines that we believe will be there for the long term. Um, 
as things settled, you're going to start seeing uh, two things happen. One, a better understanding of, of uh, who are the survivors of this crisis in airline terms. And number two, you're going to start seeing some stress on the balance sheet of some of the lessors. Uh, you know, small, medium, or large, I don't know. But uh, I think that, that is to be expected. So I think the combination of a better understanding of the risk profile of your of the credit, and um, you know the uh, motivation of a of a seller is going to make for interesting trades. Um, but again, that takes time, right? It just you know that market really does not start opening again until those two factors uh, are, are together, and you have some level of financing available. Um, and you know, in my experience, this this can take a couple of years before that market reopens. And maybe finally, Ted, looking out over maybe the next one or two years, could could you see transformational or material structural changes in aviation finance? I mean, if you if you look out over that, you know, relative near term, how do you see that playing out? Are we into you know? Less leasing companies, but but what airlines possibly with a greater dependence on them, or or what what's your view, or how are things will will progress on the macro level? Absolutely, see, even the the the, the depth of this crisis, uh, we absolutely see a, a a different horizon or different structure, if you will, uh, to the uh, to the market over the next few years. Um, the question, frankly, is you know what what shape we will take, and you know my crystal ball is as good as anybody's. Um, I think having said that, I think you know if you look at uh, on the airline side, you know you know if if past history repeats, you can expect some uh, consolidation, uh, and you know you know given how um, you know. Governments are intervening. Um, you can expect, you know, two groups of, of airlines: those who have uh, sought, uh, you know, government um, intervention and remain somewhat uh, either controlled or protected by their states on one hand, and those who have not sought government intervention. Typically, it will be sort of the uh, LCCs and sort of um, you know uh, more flexible uh, and typically more profitable uh, airlines, and so you may you may see a market which is really bifurcated between big, large uh, state control carriers on one hand and, and very aggressive LCCs on the others, and so I think that's particularly a, a, a possibility in Europe. That's on the airline side. On the OEM side, I think you know the um, you know the clear pattern here is to have a stable product over a longer period of time. And so I think that for 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 where I sit as an aircraft investor, that's a very simple positive because you have OEMs that uh, have demonstrated their willingness to reining production. Um, and and match you know supply with demand you know product pr- produced to uh, to order uh, no white tails 
But on top of that, they're, you know, they have no means to develop new products for the foreseeable future. So that's a very stable invest, investment environment for as far as I'm concerned. And then, you know, on the lesser side, I think, you know, we'll see in time and again that scale matters, uh, both from a uh, servicing standpoint, i.e. you need to have you know, uh, a number of people on the ground to manage your portfolio. And that's particularly the case today. I can tell you that uh, the 90 plus uh, 95 that we have in our teams are working around the clock to talk to airlines, et cetera. And you cannot do that uh, with uh, uh, a couple of people and hope for the best. That, that just doesn't work. So scale is important as a servicer. Scale is important also uh, when it comes to purchasing money in the capital markets. Um, and I think that, you know, again, uh, you will see that uh, as a driving factor, perhaps to consolidation in our industry, in our leasing industry. And so I think, look, it's difficult to make any predictions, but there are some, there are some driving factors to, uh, to each one of the segments of the business. And I do absolutely believe that we'll have a very different environment uh, in a couple of years' time than last year. Ted, I'd just like to close in saying, you know, on behalf of KPMG and Airline Economics, I'd like to thank you for what were some really interesting insights today. And I wish you all the, the best in the near term for, for Carlisle Aviation Partners. Thank you, Joe. Uh, my pleasure. 